Book Three, Chapter Twelve of Clara Vaughan, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Clara Vaughan, Volume Two, by R. D. Blackmore. Book Three, Chapter Twelve. But when Conrad should have learned who it was that nursed his dog, would he feel the tender gratitude and delight which he now displayed so freely? Would he say, as in his fervour he now said every day, Miss Valence, I do believe there is no one like you in the world? Would he not rather say, Miss Vaughan, how basely you have deceived me! Giudice, come away! A whistle, and the last sound of the foot, for which I listened now by the hour, the thought was continually with me. It poisoned half the flavour, and ruined all the digestion of my happy moments. But what could I do? How unmaidenly, how presumptuous of me, to imagine that he was likely to break his heart for me! And if he did, why then he should break my own as well. I am not one of the drawing-room young ladies who receive a modified proposal every Sunday afternoon, and think much more about the sermon afterwards. I cannot play with the daffodils upon the brink of love, sleepily thrusting my admirers in, and lounging with half-open breast, which neither love-knots may secure, nor flutter in sighs unzone. No, here I am, such as I am, such as God has made me. No usury, no auction for my heart. Once for all I give it, and my life goes with it. So it must always be with a girl of any feeling who has trained her own existence. But for my wild ignorance I would dare to say, so it must always be with a girl of feeling. Twist and warp her as you will. Yet I am told by those who know the world that it is not so with nine girls out of ten among the lady caste. If beneath the rock of fashion they prefer the diamond to the meat, let them have it and starve thereon. The choice is of their own young crops. No parent bird can force the bauble down. But what have I to do with this? All I know is that neither I nor any child of mine will or shall be gulleted thus for life. After every little burst of thought, every feeble sally of imagination, came, as always is the case with me, came the slow, pusillanimous reaction. All that I had any right to do was to paint earn money, and be off for Italy. Little as I knew about the expense of travelling, I felt sure that it would be vain to start with less than a hundred pounds. Enormous sum! How could I ever hope to win it, though I painted day and night, and lived on bread and water? To this diet, or what in London is quite synonymous, bread and milk, I had already reduced myself in my stern resolve to lay by two pounds every week, Farewell to meat, so soon as my Devonshire pegmate was gone, and farewell to what I cared much more about, a glass of good London stout. I suppose that there is something horribly vulgar in my tastes, or I will confess that the liquid called Black Draught by Mr. Dore had much charm for me. However, I abjured it with all other luxuries, and throve no whit the worst. The kindly little woman, whose summum bonum next to her sticks, was plenty of good fare, took it much to heart that I should live so plainly. 
why miss valence you are the queerest young lady as ever i set eyes on all as ever i see and i've seed a many they picks a little bit so dainty like a canary cracking an empty seed when the gentleman is by then off they goes when there's nobody looking and munches like so many pigs in a potato berry miss violante you know but as for you why bless me and keep me you feeds that great horse of a dog with all the fat of the land and you lives on a crust yourself now do come down that's a good soul there's a clod of beef a billing with suet dumplings and such lovely parsnips you can smell it all up the stairs galloping galloping my good friend and that rogue of a charlie won't come home i know he's got along with that thief bob ridley and i expect the boy every minute with a little drop of stout and the best pewter pot for you now if you won't come down miss valence my dinner will all stick in my throat and i am so hungry so am i mrs shelfer you have made me so in her excitement she slipped from the edge of the chair whereon she always balanced herself when i made her sit down she thought it disrespectful to occupy too much room and cuddled herself in the smallest compass possible let no ill be thought of giudice who thinks ill of me i care not for i can defend myself if it be worth while so can giudice with his teeth the finest set in london but he has no tongue no merop tongue i mean it was true that giudice had good fare and thoroughly he enjoyed it that dog knew a juicy bit of meat short of the staple crisp yet melting quite as well as i did true he had a love of bones transparent gristle and white fibres which i from inferior structure cannot quite appreciate yet all this was no part of his mind and much less did it affect the greatness of his soul he kept as all of us do who are good for anything a certain alter ego a higher voice a purer sense a vein which fashion cannot leech or false shame tourniquet so the good dog used to come to me before he touched his breakfast lunch or dinner and entreat me to devour all i could there would still be lots left for him in my hurry to get start of time to spin a little faster the revolving moons i did a thing which i could ill approve to myself even at the moment i wrote to sally huxtable to obtain mr daw's permission for me to sell my gordit professor ross had offered me no less than ten guineas for it as a gentleman he should not have made the offer after what i had told him but the love of science falsely so called by collectors drives men to discern propriety by the wire-drawn line of their longings however i was not quite so blind upon right and wrong as to mean to keep all the money i offered mr daw half if the plaything should be sold i knew not why but i could not bear the idea of a bargain and sale with conrad's father wide apart as the two always were in my mind i rather hoped that beany daw though sorely tempted would refuse and now the time was almost come for news from tossel's barton dear sally must have filled the twelve copy-books at the rate of one a week ere i quite expected it the letter came but before its tidings are imparted i must in a few words describe the visit of inspector cutting's son george cutting came one evening to see his good aunt patty for so he called mrs shelfer who was in truth his cousin though i had been so assured that my enemy could not escape i was not equally convinced and at times a deep anxiety and despair possessed me therefore i went to the kitchen 
to see the inspector's son, and requested Mrs. Shelfer to allow me five minutes of conversation with him. He stood all the while, and seemed rather shy and confused. He had not heard from his father since the ship sailed, but he had seen in the papers that she had been spoken somewhere. The party as I knew of was still safe in London. My blood ran like lava at the thought, or I should have heard of it. He, George Cutting, had his eye upon him, and so had two of the detective force, but what were they in comparison with his father? This he asked, despite his shyness, with so large a contempt that I began to think the Cutting family admired the Cuttings only. Upon me, who am no Cutting, he left the simple impression that the qualities so lauded by his father lay as yet beneath a bushel. However, his aunt Patty declared that he could eat three times as much as Charlie. Not unlikely, if he only drank one-third of Charlie's allowance. Mrs. Shelfer, who knew that I was laying by a fixed sum every week, began to look upon me as a fine young miser. Of course she fell quite in with what she supposed to be my ideas, for she never contradicted anyone, unless it was a cabman. Oh, I do love money, my good friend. Gold! Gold, it is so beautiful. Did you ever hear tell of the marrowbone I had? Oh, dear. What marrowbone, Mrs. Shelfer? Why, a big beef marrowbone, that long, full of sovereigns and guineas after dear Miss Minto. I stopped it with a bung and a piece of bladder, and for better than a twelvemonth, while they was executing her will, I slept with that beneath my pillar, for fear the priest should get it. Lord, how they did fight over the poor old lady's rags and bones, that leathery priest and three yellow kites of cousins, they said they was, as come from Portugal. At least they got a ministration, with the testament and text, and they robbed me shameful, shameful, my good friend. Never catch me going to mass again, or you may tell me of it. And what became of the marrowbone, Mrs. Shelfer? At this inquiry she winked both eyes rapidly and screwed up her little mouth. Oh, what a thief that father banger was to be sure. You see, miss, I had strict orders to shut him out when Miss Minto was near her end, because he had kicked her dear cat Philippina from the top of the stairs to the bottom after he had given her unction. What a pretty sight it was to see them seven dear cats all sitting round the fire, each one on his proper stool with his name done on it in different coloured worsted. I had so much a year left me on the Bank of England, honourable to the day, for each one of those cats, and change of diet every week, and now there's only one of them left, and that's my dear old Tom. But, Mrs. Shelfer, about the marrowbone? Well, my good friend, I was going to tell you, the way that Father Banger got into the house again to steal that poor old lady's money for building a school or some such villainy, he knowed how fond the poor soul was of cats, so he borrowed a cat somewhere, and he got two boys to let it down the area with a whipcord round its stomach, and to jerk, jerk, jerk away at it, and the poor thing did squeal sure enough. Run, Patty, says my poor mistress, and she could hardly speak. Oh, Patty, there's some cruel Englishman torturing a cat again. So that I runs into the area, and in pops Father Banger, who had his back to the wall with a great sheet of paper, and he begins to make a list of all the things in the house. I took the cat to dear Miss Minto, and how pleased she was. Please God, says she, to let me live a few days more, till I make a Catholic of this poor heretic. She always converted her cats, the first thing. 
and then it shall have a stool and a good annuity. But the next day the poor thing went. Little Miss Shelfer had so great a fear of death, that like some ancient nations she shunned all mention of his name by euphemistic periphrase. She had never known real illness, and even a stitch or a spasm would frighten her for days. When I spoke calmly, as I sometimes did, of our great inevitable friend, whom we so labour to estrange, up would jump Mrs. Shelfer with a shudder and a little scream. Oh, don't, my good soul, oh, don't, how can you? Let us live, Miss Valence, let us live while we can, and not think of such dreadful things. You make my blood run cold. But, Mrs. Shelfer, surely you know that we all must die. Of course, my good friend, of course, but then you needn't remind one of it. I met Dr. Franks today, and he said, Why, Mrs. Shelfer, I do declare you look younger than ever. And a very clever man he is, yes, yes, and not a grey hair in my head, and my father lived to eighty-eight. And how old are you, Mrs. Shelfer, now? Oh, I'm sure I don't know, Miss Valence, I don't keep no account. Let us talk of something else. Did you hear what Tom did to your Judy to-day? <laughs> Poor little thing, but I'm not going to moralise. Shall I ever know the history of that marrow-bone? Footnote. I have now ascertained that a roving dog popped in, and away with the marrow-bone, sovereigns, guineas, and all. C.V. 1864. End of chapter 12